Koans are like bandits. They stay in the same inn where you are staying. And they befriend you. But then, when the mind is dark and still as the night sky, they slide open the paper-thin door and they steal all your valuables if you let them. If you were a tree, you would let them. If you were a baby, you would let them. And maybe you would laugh. If you were, what am I? You would give them all the bits and pieces. None of them have any particular value anyway. If you were moo, you would be the valuables and the bandit and the door sliding open and the night sky. It is my earnest hope that all of you have touched and experienced a deeper level of quiet mind. Some American teachers say, don't worry about quieting your mind. You can't stop thoughts. But that's just not true. Insight, true wisdom, depends upon a quiet mind. Master Shen Yang says we go from a complicated mind with many tracks of thought going on at once to a simplified mind where we're focusing on breathing or focusing on the koan. And we've let go of a lot of the things we would ordinarily think about. We keep returning to the koan or to the breath. He calls it the method, return to the method. And then concentrated mind, where the mind begins to focus its power like a laser beam on one thing. And everything else becomes almost irrelevant. We still function. But what we're focused on is continually with us. Continually with us. Tibetans say, like a a hungry dog watching a piece of meat that its master is moving from place to place. That kind of concentration. We don't lose track of Mu. We don't lose track of the cypress tree. When we sit at Oriyoki, it's as if we're looking through eyes that are green. We don't lose track of the awareness of a baby. We don't lose track of looking very carefully, who am I, what am I? Concentrated mind, and then single-pointed mind, 
entering samadhi where there is just the breath, and that is all. There is nothing else, just the breath. The breath fills the entire universe. The breath is huge, all-encompassing. So single-pointed mind, and then no mind at all. And that's when wisdom arises. Wisdom depends upon a quiet mind. You can have small openings, like a match struck in a huge cavern. Even if you're only able to have a quiet mind for a few breaths at a time. So that is a practice worth cultivating. A few breaths at a time of quiet mind. It's one you can cultivate anytime, anywhere. But you only get a glimpse and then the fire goes out. Koans help to keep the flame burning. Koans also light new matches to illuminate different areas of the black cavern. You can't do koan work on your own. I think you would realize that by now in this session. You can't do koan work on your own. It takes a teacher to keep pushing you, encouraging you, pushing you, goading you. In my case, with my teacher, sometimes even insulting you to get your dander up. It takes a teacher to keep on pushing you back into the koan over and over and over again so that you will sink deeper into it more deeply than you thought possible and that you could possibly do on your own. Of course you volunteer for koan work. You go along with it. You keep engaging the koan. You follow the teacher's instructions. Because some part of you knows you must You know that it's the key, a wonderful key. But your areas of delusion, layers of delusion, could never be peeled off one by one if you are the one teaching your own self. It's putting the fox in charge of the hen house, as Kyogen says. It's putting the small self in charge of trying to see the, see the large self. You can't do it. You have to have a teacher. All of you have had a taste in this session, at least, of what koan work is like. It's not opening a book and reading a koan and then talking about it in a study group. It's more like throwing yourself into a giant meat grinder on purpose. You can't do it unless you want to be taken apart. You want to be disassembled. And koan work and the insights that it brings depend on quiet mind. 
In fact, there's a koan about the state of deeply quiet mind. It's a poem that monk wrote on his enlightenment. It's used as a koan. As many koans are about someone's opening. Sitting in the room in absolute silence. Mind source unmoved. Filled like still water. The striking of thunder has opened the gate of the head's crown. Beginningless self-nature has been awakened. Mind source unmoved. He's not saying mind source filled with occasional thoughts and emotions. Saying mind source unmoved. I want you all to experience that state more and more completely. I said yesterday that I would read some stories about Deepama. One of the things she said was, whenever I get time alone, I turn my mind inward. Whenever I get time alone, I turn my mind inward. So this especially applies during Sashin, and it especially applies to the last day. When you leave the zendo, keep doing mu chanting quietly, with every step, with every breath. Keep on doing sasokan breathing. It will keep your mind quiet. You may not have noticed the difference between what happens when we're chanting mu with great vigor. It displaces everything from the mind. When we're yelling mu, there's no room for thinking. So that's why we do it, to show that that's possible. But of course you can't go around doing that all the time. You can if you're driving to work by yourself. You don't mind people in other cars looking at you. You could yell moo. Which I have done when my mind was very disturbed on the way to work. I have done very, very vigorous moo chanting in the car in order to still my mind in order to force it into being quiet for a while. Because whatever I was distressed about could not be looked at clearly unless my mind was quiet. So you can summon that vigor at times. But most of the time it's inappropriate. But it gives you a taste of what's possible to bring that energy into moo, quiet moo chanting, make it that intense. You probably noticed that as soon as we started doing quieter moo chanting, then the mind comes in with a layer of intermittent thought. So notice that happening. Sweep the thought out. Fill the mind with moo. Just as you did when you were doing vigorous moo chanting.
So here's a story about Deepama. These are her the lessons that she taught people, ten lessons to live by. Lesson one, choose one meditation practice and stick with it. Lesson two, meditate every day. Lesson three, any situation is workable. Lesson four, practice patience. Lesson five, free your mind. So this is about her state of mind. Deepa Ma did not say that the mind is mostly stories. She said that there is nothing in the mind but stories. These are the personal dramas that create and maintain the sense of individual identity, who we are, what we do, what we are, and are not capable of. Without our being aware of it, the endless series of such thoughts drives and limits our lives. And yet these stories are totally without substance. Even my challenge, students believe in their stories, their attachments to their stories. When someone said, I can't do that, she would ask, are you sure? Or who says? Or why not? She encouraged students to observe the stories, to see their emptiness, and to go beyond the limitations they impose. Let go of thinking, she urged. Meditation is not about thinking. At the same time, Deepa Ma taught that the mind is not an enemy to be gotten rid of. Rather, in the process of befriending the mind, in getting to know and accept it, it ceases to be a problem. Deepa Ma knew the freedom that follows the process. She lived in a state of thought-free awareness. In a group interview, Jack Cornfield innocently asked, What is it like in your mind? Deepa Ma smiled, closed her eyes, and quietly answered, In my mind there are three things, concentration, loving-kindness, and peace. Jack, not sure if he had heard correctly, asked, Is that all? Yes, that is all, Deepa Ma replied. The room was silent. Then there were a few sighs and quiet laughs followed by Jack's barely audible whisper. How wonderful. Even though I wouldn't take anyone's excuses, because she was a layperson, she had the perspective that a layperson could always find time to practice. Deepa Ma taught that the mind is all stories, one after another, like nesting dolls. You open one, and another is inside. Open that one, and there's another story about that. When you get to the last nesting doll, the smallest one, and open it, inside of it is what? It's empty, nothing there, and all around you are the empty shells of the stories of your life. Because Deepa Ma was able literally to see through the stories of the mind, she did not acknowledge personal dramas of any kind. She wanted her students to live from a deeper truth than their interpretations of and identifications with the external events of their lives. Deepa Ma knew all about life's dramas, She had personally suffered chronic illness, grief at the deaths of her parents, 
her husband and two children in crushing despair. Only when she had gone beyond identification with the stories and dramas in her life did she begin to live as a free person. Sometimes, when someone would come to her with their troubles, she would laugh and laugh. She couldn't stop laughing. Finally, she would say, This problem you are facing is no problem at all. It's because you think. You think, this is mine. It is because you think. There is something for me to solve. Don't think in this way, and then there will be no trouble. This is relevant to her, if she were alive today and you were able to see her, what her instructions would be for your practice. This is from Joseph Goldstein. The last time I saw Deepama before she died, she told me that I should sit for two days. She didn't mean a two-day retreat, but one sitting two days long. I had to laugh. It seemed completely impossible. But with uncompromising compassion, she simply said to me, Don't be lazy. This is from another person who knew her. When Deepama asked me about my practice, I told her I meditated in the morning and the evening every day, and the rest of the day I worked at my job. Then she inquired, well, what do you do on the weekends? I don't remember my answer, but her response was, there are two days. You should be practicing all day Saturday and Sunday. Then she gave me a strict lesson on how to optimize my time. I never forgot the lesson, this idea that I should be practicing all the time. Practicing all the time. Don't pick it up and put it down. There are ways to practice all the time. So, what you're hearing from the koans and from Deepa Ma is very different from what you hear some teachers say Don't try to stop your thoughts. Minds naturally think. That's what minds do. Just let go of each thought as soon as you notice it and let it float away like a helium balloon. It's not a bad instruction. It's useful at a certain stage of meditation so people don't fight their minds. And I've certainly said it myself to some people. But it is a preliminary stage, and you all have to know that. Mind source unmoved. This means that you dive down below the tangle of several layers of thought, and you sit at the source of thought. You sit and watch thoughts beginning to bubble up, and you do not let them emerge into full-blown thoughts. 
In fact, you are completely disinterested in their contents. You are more interested in sitting in the room in absolute silence. When the mind's energy is not wasted in contact, when the mind's energy is not wasted in constant thought, then tension builds up. That energy that would have been dissipated into thought is held in. And tension builds up. Harada Roshi says that the mind becomes taut like a drumskin. That taut awareness can collapse at the slightest event. A clap of thunder in this poem. The sight of a flower. The sound of a pebble striking a bamboo stem. One master was enlightened by the sudden splash of water in the toilet when he was going to the bathroom. Another master was enlightened as he sat in a dark room by the tiny click of a key being put down on a wooden table. Pain can do it too. Gensha stubbed his toe and was enlightened. I should say, had an enlightenment experience. No one has one, one enlightenment and that's it. Master Bokshu was having a conversation with his student, Uman. And as Uman was leaving, Bokshu suddenly shoved him out of the room and slammed the door on his leg. And Uman's leg was broken. And he cried out in pain, and at that moment he was enlightened. And it said that when he was ready to die and announced to his disciples that he was going to die, he pulled his leg up, which he couldn't, because it was broken, he couldn't sit in full lotus. And he said, you will control me no longer, and re-broke his leg and put it in full lotus and then died in full lotus. So when the mind is taught, anything, anything can break open this constructed self, dissolve the glue that holds the bits together. There are innumerable Dharma gates, all of them wide open. We have to have a quiet mind to be able to truly see truly hear, truly feel, without a person seeing, feeling, or hearing. In the Bible it says, it would be easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. 
So most people interpret that as meaning somebody with wealth, money. But it could be seen in an entirely different way. When we're carrying around this treasure we call myself and all the thoughts about myself, we cannot go through the Dharma gate into heaven. Many koans give instances of a taut mind being punctured by a word, a shout, a blow. Anything can do it if the mind is truly quiet. And taut. So quiet doesn't mean drowsy. Quiet means wide awake. This combination of completely relaxed and wide awake, which is so hard for us to negotiate. So I'll just give you some examples. When Vaso was out walking with Hyakujo, Master Hyakujo, the famous Zen master, he saw a wild duck fly by. So we see the cranes, sandhill cranes fly by this time of year, and ducks and geese. And the, the uh, swallows are now gathering today to get ready to take off some of the other small birds in the trees. Sometimes we have trees full of full of birds. So Basho, Baso was walking with Yakucho, and he saw a wild duck fly by. And Basso said, what is it? Yakujo said, it is a wild duck. So this is when Yakujo was a student and Basso was the teacher. Yakujo said, it's a wild duck. Basso said, where is it? Yakujo said, it has flown away. Basso at last gave Yakujo's nose a sharp pinch. Hyakujo cried out with pain. Paso said, There, how can it fly away? Said Joe's verse, The wild duck, what, how, and where? Basso has seen, talked, taught, and exhausted the meaning of mountain clouds and moonlit seas. But Hyakujo doesn't understand, has flown away. Flown away? No, he's brought back. Say, say. So, Basso is not asking his student about the duck. Hmm? Just like, I'm not asking you about the cypress tree out there, or the big, big leaf maple. You can take me out and show it to me. But that's not what's being asked. The cypress tree is a gateway into what? The duck flying through the sky points to what? But Yakujo doesn't see it, and he says, it's a wild duck. And his teacher says, well, where is it? What is it? Where is it? He's asking about something else. Yakujo says, 
it's flown away. Hmm? He's giving an innocent answer, but he's interacting at a superficial level. He's not aware that the Dharma is constantly being revealed in everything. So Basso reached out and gave Hyakujo's nose a big pinch. Hyakujo cried out in pain. There was a possibility there. He could have awakened with the pain like others had, but he didn't. Obaso said, how can it fly away? So maybe Yagajo was saying, oh, I've flown away. I'm, you know, I've, the self has disappeared. Maybe he was saying that, trying to do a little dharma combat with his teacher. Yes, the self has flown away. So then his teacher goes, Ouch! Not quite flown away. But you can see from these stories that a sudden pain can help people break through. So you can see the Kiyosaku differently then. You can see the Kiyosaku as the stick of compassion. That when you bow and ask for the Kiyosaku, you're asking, please help me awaken. Because anything can do it. There's another koan related to Hyakujo. This was... um, his disciple, Reyu. Reyu was ordained at age 15 and he studied uh, texts, philosophical texts of the Mahayana and Theravada forms of Buddhism. But then he decided to give up these academic studies, as many people do, because they are ultimately not the food you want. And he went to Master Hyakujo's monastery. So by this time, Hyakujo is no longer a student, but a teacher. And uh, Reyu was 23 years old and Hyakujo was 74. And we don't know how many years after Reyu came to study with Hyakujo that this occurred. One evening Reyu was sitting in Zazen like a piece of dead wood without realizing how far the night had advanced. Old Hyakujo broke the silence and asked, Who are you sitting there? It's Reyu, Master. Oh, Reyu, rake up the fire in the hearth. So, uh, sometimes the zendo in the winter would be heated with a little a little fire. In Sogenji, there's, the zendo is ice cold because the windows are open in the winter. Um, and in the, in the dead of winter, in February, when it's the coldest, they put a little kerosene heater in the middle of the zendo. You can imagine a tiny little kerosene heater right there. It doesn't, it's like maybe psychologically a little support, but doesn't change the temperature one degree. So Reyu has been sitting, but he evidently is, he says, you've been sitting like a piece of dead wood, so he's deep in samadhi and the fire's gone out and he doesn't realize it. Because when you sit in deep samadhi, you're not aware of temperature at all. 
So Yagujo says, oh, rake up the fire in the hearth. Reyu went to the hearth with tongs, as ordered. When he could find no embers, he said, there's no fire left, master. So realize they're talking at two levels. He says, there's no fire left, master. Hyakujo then came himself to the hearth, took up the tongs, raped deep down, and found a small burning ember. Picking it up and holding it in front of Reyu, Hyakujo cried, What is this? Nee! At this moment, Reyu was all of a sudden enlightened. Reyu spontaneously prostrated himself in front of Hyakujo. And then he stayed and studied with Hyakujo for a long time. So the next koan is about an incident with uh, Reyu after he had been studying longer with Yakujo and became a senior disciple and was working at a, as a tenzo. The tenzo, the cook in the monastery, is a senior position because, especially in, in the old days, you, you had to work with donated food and so you had to adjust your cooking according to what what the monks got on their begging rounds or what was brought in donations to the monastery. And of course, everyone, when they're sitting and there isn't other forms of entertainment, eating becomes very, very important to people. So there's often a lot of criticism of the Tenzo too, that the Tenzo has to be able to take with equanimity. So this happened when Reyu was the Tenzo. And some of Hyakujo's followers asked him to start a new monastery on Mount Dai. And Hyakujo evidently had Reyu in mind to send out to start the new monastery. But there was a head monk who was senior to Reyu named Zenkaku. And he heard, uh, or he was became aware of this possibility that this junior monk, Reyu, would be sent out instead of him. So he got a little bristly about that. So Master Hyakujo decided to have an open test in front of all the monks to help select who would go out and become the abbot of this new monastery. Now, abbot of the new monastery doesn't mean you go and there's a monastery. It means you go and there's donated land, and then you build a monastery. So it's not like a huge gift. But it is a gift. But it's more a responsibility. But in order to choose the best person to do this, he did a little test. That's the background for this koan. When Master Reyu was studying under Hyakujo, he worked as Tenzo in the monastery. Hyakujo wanted to choose an abbot for Dai Monastery. He told the head monk and all the rest of his disciples to make their Zen presentations, and the ablest one would be sent to found the monastery. Then Hyakujo took a pitcher of water, placed it on the floor, and asked the question, This must not be called a pitcher. What do you call it? The head monk said, It cannot be called a wooden sandal. Which is not in itself a bad answer. 
It avoids calling it a picture. But it doesn't say it's not a picture. Hyakujo then asked Reyu. Reyu walked up, kicked over the picture, and walked out. Hyakujo said, the head monk has been defeated by Reyu. So Reyu was ordered to start the monastery. Muman's poem, throwing away bamboo baskets and wooden ladles. With a direct blow, he cuts off complications. So throwing away bamboo baskets and wooden ladles, those are the containers that a cook used. Right now, now we have steel, stainless steel bowls, but before we had stainless steel bowls, everything was kept in baskets. So those were the containers. Throwing away bamboo baskets and wooden ladles with a direct blow, he cuts off complications. Hyakujo tries to stop him with his strict barrier, but in vain. The tip of his foot creates innumerable Buddhas. Please vow, please vow that you will practice until you experience the deeply quiet, boundless mind for yourself, until you have been overturned and thoroughly emptied out. <laughs> 